I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snark It, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. Welcome back to our listeners and uh, welcome back to us, back on our bullshit here at Target Snarket, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. I am your chief broad, Danielle. I'm your digital strategy, Barbie, Kaylee. And I am your trusty production steed, Alan. I uh, I appreciate that after I gave you that name right before you hit record that you went in to edit that in the doc real fast. I called you a trusty production steed. I watched you react to it. That looked like maybe a negative reaction. And then I immediately saw the doc get highlighted. <laughs> it was like, I know what's going on here. It was awful and so funny. <laughs> I I did have project manager Ken first, but yeah, but he's just Ken. Yeah, and I'm way more than that. I'm a production steed, (laughs) steed, sick dude. (laughs) Oh God. Okay, so this week we are here to talk about that hustling grind life. You know. Mostly we want to talk about how incredible hustle culture is, how it's literally never hurt anyone ever, how if you don't have at least four side hustles, like, do you even live, bro? Uh, How every successful person maintains their success by waking up at 4 a.m. for uh, first working their body and then working their minds and then working their jobs until at least 1 a.m. And that kind of grind, my friends, is why they're successful. No need to pay attention to their swimming pool full of cash that their dad gave them, of course. Their dad made that money because he does lift, bro. So uh, I feel like we would have more followers if that's what our podcast was actually about. Like, is that our problem? Yeah. That's basically most marketing podcasts. (laughs) Like like pickup artist adjacent, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that Venn diagram looks like, actually. (laughs) Pickup artist to marketers? (laughs) Yeah. Like concerningly close though the 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 overlap is not zero (laughs) and therefore uh overlap is an mlm oh yeah there we go (laughs) this I don't know why. Chanel. Uh, sorry, we were we were making uh, hand gestures there. I literally just told our guests to make sure that she was an active listener and that I'm here making Chanel hand gestures, I suppose. Anyway, uh, this week we are jo- joined. We are joined by the founder of an executive coach at My Factor Coaching and Consulting, an executive coaching and leadership development practice that specializes in coaching and leadership for Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits profits and founder-led enterprises. Since 2007, MyFactor has coached thousands of mid to C-level leaders on how to amplify their leadership presence and effectiveness, paving the way for transformative growth for leaders, teams, and organizations. Please welcome one Gemini queen, Michelle Awuku-Tatum. Welcome, Yay. Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Gemini sister. Good to be here. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here with you. <laughs> 
we are uh, very excited to have you. Fun fact for those of you listening at home, uh, Michelle and I are actually colleagues in the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program together. Uh, We had this idea for a podcast um, because of an early session that we had. I think it was about contingency planning. Yeah. Yeah, You're right. You're right. I think our, our exercise was to figure out like what happens to my business if something happens to me. And the way I took it was like, what happens next if something happens to me? But I know like there was also the, like, how do we prevent these things from happening? Uh, anyway, one table answered uh, that, you know, in order to protect like our health, that uh, CEOs, owners, business owners could get a gym membership or go for a walk every day. And then I, you know, jumped in to drag everyone down essentially uh, and let everyone know that uh, gym memberships and, and walking be damned uh, that honestly, like I felt, I felt pretty strongly and I do still feel very strongly that hustle culture burnout is actually more of a concern, at least in, in my opinion, than even moving your body. Moving your body is very important. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, uh, denigrate the importance of that. Um, but also I think the way that, uh, you know, we've talked about like sometimes the toxicity of small business culture, um, it's, you know, it can be pervasive. And Michelle, I know you and I had talked briefly after that session about how, often, like at least I've found it inside of uh, small business culture where there is this feeling that like we have to hustle so much or we will never have success and things will fall mm. apart. Yeah, no. And I mean, we also talked about how it impacted us like from a health perspective as well. And same thing, it's like you're chasing, chasing, chasing. Yeah not necessarily in the pursuit of money. It could be pursuit of money for some, but really for success and for impact, even trying to do the good things that we do for our clients. And you have to think about, well, what is the cost to me, right? And so I started to become fascinated with this topic of the hustle culture because I was firmly in the camp of, I'll rest when I'm dead. I'm going to keep on pushing. You know, you have to push yourself really hard. You have to work really hard. And I believed that until this faulty thinking finally caught up with me. And as we were entering into the pandemic, I was literally started to get sick, kept on pushing myself through it because, you know, you'd bounce back. And then I ended up in bed for six weeks where I could barely move. I was in so much pain and start to think about, okay, if I get through this, how am I going to do it differently? How am I going to do that differently? And Honestly, just going through that experience makes you more aware when you start to hear others talk about the impacts of this, how the impacts of hustle culture on them. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and turn it back to you. No, no. I mean, I think that that's, um, you know, I think that was a way that we bonded over this too, because I think I've told you that, uh, and I know Alan and Kaylee both know that, um, you know, around the pandemic, uh, and, and I've, I've owned broad now for a little over eight years and I was always the, you know, yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of a, a thing. Um, but I will say that I used to do the, the grind a lot more prior to starting my business and I burned out kind of quickly, which is why, like, I wanted to start the business. I wanted to have more flexibility in my hours, but 
you know, one thing leads to another and things are going well. And then, you know, poor boundaries lead to lots of deadlines piling up. And uh, things were going really well when the pandemic, like, like right before it hit. And then going into it, I had all of these clients and all of these opportunities. And I had one more that knocked on my door. It was a uh, global consulting firm that reached out and wanted me to be their SVP of strategy. And I thought, well, shit, I can do it all. You know, I I was working at the time for, um, you know, a, a Fortune 100 company um, as one a senior strategy consultant for them. I was running my business on the side. I had a couple. I had a handful of clients. Um, Kaylee, I know, uh, I believe you were a part of us uh, relaunching a website during all of this time for a client, which was stressful enough as it is. And then. Um, yeah. And then this firm came around and uh, I said, sure, why not? I mean, it's the pandemic. What the fuck else am I doing? Right. Uh, and, you know, I ended up working 18, 19 hour days, six days a week. And yeah. that is when my chronic mm-hmm. illness be- became. (laughs) And now, I mean, I remember like, and I still see this a lot, you know, I'll mention that we have a four day work week here at Broad. And there are a lot of people that look at me like I'm crazy. But the truth is that like, I need it. And that, uh, that otherwise, you know, um, my health suffers. And so, you know, I want, I want us to talk today about like why we get into this mindset around hustle culture. Uh, I know for the folks that listen to us on the regular, you know, we got tired of hustle culture a long time ago. We disparage it pretty hard now. Um, but buying into it, leaning hard into it, it's the reason that my health issues popped up. Uh, it's the reason I know a lot of people end up facing, um, both mental and physical breakdowns. Uh, uh, and, you know, we think that it's time to be honest about hustle culture. Uh, it's really rooted in uh, perfectionism. It's rooted in white supremacy. More on this later. You know, that hurts us all. And it's this idea that productivity is really the only metric by which we should be judged or rewarded in life. That, that capitalism uh, is how we live and die. It, in my opinion, it keeps us on this treadmill it keeps the carrot in front of us and it keeps us focused on the carrot uh, instead of looking around at the state of things and saying, hey, you know, maybe this isn't all in my control. Maybe it isn't just about me working 18 hours a day, seven days a week and still not becoming a millionaire or still not having um, financial or time freedom or still always having problems in my business to solve. Maybe they're are variables that I have zero control over, whether it's the ecosystem I'm in or, you know, it's just luck sometimes. So um, just to kind of start out, I mean, I don't think, I think all of us here have some kind of story around buying into the hustle. Like what, it, Kaylee, Kaylee's shaking her head. Kaylee's like, never, not one time. Actually, <laughs> cozy. I don't want to be hustled. I am <laughs> slow moving. No, I actually, listening to you both, I'm so glad my father does not listen to this podcast because he is a product of hustle culture. So I'm like second gen. And for my entire life, my dad has been like, I might have not been a great father, but I've been a great provider. And it's like, 
that's been fantastic for me. And it's given me a lot of advances in my life, Mm -hmm. but damn, do I wish you'd been here like Mm -hmm. to not talk about work for one second. I can't go. I can't drive him to our house in Keystone without him having three work calls. Mm -hmm. And he's above the age of retirement and he has no want or need to slow down anytime soon. And so I'm just like, yeah, no, I'm going to take my days. I'm not going to do that. Okay, but I'm going to fight you on this, all right? Because you've been working for my ass for a long time. And you routinely work late. You pop in on your days It's awful. It's for anxiety. There's a difference. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I want you to love me. (laughs) Hey, the hustle comes with different rewards for us all, right? One of them is Danielle's love. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very withholding. Um, the power of the leading. No, I mean, it, yes, yes, of course. Michelle, why do you feel like, like, why do we buy into this so hard? Like, Kaylee just like opened up a whole, a whole uh, other option there, right? That it, you know, what if it's not about like success or about money, but it's about making sure I keep my job and that I'm doing well and that my boss notices, like where, where does this come from that that we buy into it so hard? Yeah, no, I love that question. It comes from a whole lot of things. It comes from the need to be recognized. And then how do, how do corporations or small businesses or our clients value us, right? Do we see ourselves as an asset or are we of some, or do we, define ourselves and define our value in different ways. But it really comes from how we frame success or how we are conditioned to believe what success is. So Kaylee, I'm going to probably age myself. I'm probably the same product or generation as your dad, Mm -hmm. right? In that I grew up first generation, West African parents, you have to work really hard. Yeah, You just, you know, you're lucky to be here. You work really hard. Um, and then like, you know, as you, as you come up, you truly believe in this, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, and then maybe my gender comes into it too. I went to an all girls school and this sense of pursuit of perfection. So when you overlay all of those things, it's really because we think if we work, if I work hard, people will recognize me, I will be valued, I will be safe. Mm. And we bought into that. And I think what, what, we're starting to realize and what people, some people realized way before the pandemic, but definitely during the pandemic is, is this how I want to be valued in life? Is this what's most important for me in life? That's huge that you said that about your parents being from West Africa. My father's mother came from Ireland, straight from Ireland, um, started working when she was 14, sent out for the family type deal. So he was raised with a mother who was working like double shifts at the restaurant, probably never saw her every night. So I do understand that he has that, where that's what he was raised with, with you work as hard as you need to, to make money. He found an avenue where he made even more money, not having to work 12 jobs, but he still kind of does because it's how he was raised. And then I think I'm that Mm -hmm. third level of work ethic where it's like, you have to work hard. That's how you'll be recognized. But I just, I don't have the interest of like, I'm going to work till I die. I would like to, know what retirement's going to be like 
dream about it. It probably won't exist when we're old, though. I was gonna say you're like <laughs> a late, you're like late millennial Gen Z, cause like it's cute that you think like retirement, adorable. <laughs> we gave up. That I'm book. actually praying. <laughs> I'm actually curious about, um, you know, the both of you mentioning your parents. I know, like, my dad uh, grew up very, very poor in a rural community and, uh, you know, was the oldest boy and started working when he was 10 Mm -hmm. and doing, like, manual labor and and was helping pay bills because his mom uh, didn't have an education. She was a a server, a lifelong server uh, inside of, you know, the diner in their very small town. Um, You know, my mom uh, came from two, uh, two parents that worked for the government. Um, Her dad did construction. Everybody, you know, worked very hard, but there was this idea that like you put in this hard work and you get something back from it, right? You get something back in the way of retirement, in the way of, you know, Mm -hmm. vacation days or, or, or whatever. You get something back in the way of loyalty too. I mean, neither one of my parents is good at slowing down. You know, my mom right now, my mom has had a lot of health issues in the last couple of years. And, uh, she just recently like hurt her shoulder by like, because she was trying to renovate a bathroom, I think, that doesn't need renovating. Like nobody was like, like really urgently in need of this bathroom renovation. And she was trying to like open a door jam and ended up like hurting her shoulder as a result, I guess, like trying to plow through the door. And she's Mm -hmm. more upset now that like she can't renovate the next room in her house. Like she's, she doesn't need to work like that. And, and she's upset, not that there is a renovation project in process because she finished it before she went to the doctor, but that she can't get started on the next room. Like Alan, are, are your parents similar to this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they were raised in, in poverty essentially. And also uh, we have, you know, I think my, my grandparents or something came, came over as well. And like, yeah, my, my mom, I went to visit her in Mexico recently and she was like, sitting in this house and she was like, I don't know what to do. And I feel awful because I don't, have anything to do I need to do something I need to go somewhere what's the meaning of my life these things that she's asking in in her 70s and you know I feel for her deeply because I I think there's twofold things you know two things going on right like she was fed this thing that that um Michelle so wonderfully said which is like here's what your value is but in a way too, like she's gotten to the end of it and she's like, wait a minute, where is that thing that I was Mm -hmm. promised? Mm -hmm. And I do think that for generations prior to us, the work ethic leading to something did exist in a way that it doesn't necessarily exist for us anymore. Maybe that's, I'm mistaken. Um, but it seems like things have definitely for the millennial, older millennial generation, we started to see like, wait a minute, wait a fucking minute here this bootstrapping mentality that we were given that they say works isn't working because i just graduated into a recession mm-hmm. or you know what i mean yeah i mean i just yeah. moved back from florida like retirement central and i'm seeing i was getting served at restaurants by like 80 year olds that were still working and i you're not waitressing for fun that's not a fun retirement job. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that you said about um, work ethic on where I, I kind of, I feel like work ethic is different now. And so when I'm working with organizations, there's this notion that if you aren't grinding and showing up at full tilt, that you are not valuable. And so I like to think about work ethic in terms of how are we redefining work ethic, right? When I was coming up in the workplace, there was no focus on wellness. Mm-hmm. When I start talking to, a, a, when I'm exploring working with a, a particular client, I have to start thinking about that. Like, are they well? Do they have enough balance, right? What is that they, they have amazing work ethic, yet they're either on the way to divorce, they have a serious health issue, or they're just, just not fulfilled um, personally, right? So I think for me, it's really thinking about how do we shift the narrative around work ethic? Um, because it means different things for different people. And just because all four of us may have different, if that was the case, all four of us having different work ethics doesn't mean that we're doing less in a way. Sure. Right. We could, sure. we could be doing more or, or enough. Sure. I think um, that's a really interesting, uh, uh, an interesting point to focus on too, Michelle, because um you know, I, I know, Alan, you and I have had this discussion before inside of a completely different context, but this idea of ethics, there is no one size fits all, no matter mm-hmm. what, what area we're talking about. If there was only one, one ethical framework, one ethical system, then there would be no class to really study it, right? Like there would be no discussion or argument about it. But the truth is, that we have lots of different ethical frameworks, that that philosophy Mm -hmm. is not something that's really cut and dry, that ethics are not really cut and dry. But when we talk about work ethic, I think traditionally it has always meant how hard are you willing to work and what are you willing to give up to do it? And if Mm -hmm. you are not willing to work hard or you are not willing to give up certain things, then you, you do not have a work ethic. A work ethic is something that is either, it's like a sliding scale and you either have more of it in your life or you don't have it at all on this other side of the spectrum that's there. But really that's, it's not, it's not pie, right? Like we don't have more or less of it as we eat or don't eat it. Uh, It is, it is something that each of us has and can define differently. Um, so yeah. when we're talking about language, that it's not, it's not a, a completely objective uh, concept that, that actually it's going to look different to different people uh, and that we can learn something from somebody else's work ethic, even when it does look different from ours. Yeah. And I think that's so important because just sometimes even how we see ourselves, we see ourselves as less than because of the dominant definition of work ethic, right? And and so I spend a lot of time helping people realize that like, well, why don't you think that you work as hard as your your neighbor, right? What What's behind that? What are you, what is the value that you bring to this organization? The other thing I wanted to say before I forget, because I had to write it down, um, was I loved listening to your stories, right? Because when you think about when you're trying to shift people, the the identity and our life stories play a large role in how we show up, right? Mm-hmm. So how we 
think about work ethic. I mean, I have, I'm also probably like your, I think you said your grandmother, or was it your mother, Aaron, where, where um, I, like when I go on vacation, I annoy my whole family because I, I don't know what to do with myself. But we mm-hmm. just sit on the beach and look at the ocean. How right. long? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. And then I start getting out my books and my kids like, you bought your self-help books to the beach? Like 20 books? Mom, are you going to read all them? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll read them. But And so it takes me a good, like a good week to adjust to this notion of, being able to just be um and another thing like when you were talking about role models typically so some summers we'll spend with my sister in holland in the netherlands and one of the things i started to notice early on is that everybody was so relaxed because you know what they structured their lives around their work not the other way around Mm -hmm. right so so I was meeting with moms and dads that would say things like, well, I finish at three so I can get my kids or I finish at two so I can go home and look after my dog or I have to look after my parent. And it's OK because, you know, I, my manager knows that I do the work that I need to do. But there was this level of like freedom and autonomy around how they worked that honestly, the first summer I spent in the Netherlands, I came back and said, OK, changing my, my work practices so I can have a little bit more of this balance during the week, day to day. Yeah. In our sessions at the 10,000 Small Businesses Program, you know, my takeaway from the session that we had this last week was like, you know, just because you are married to a story doesn't mean that somebody else can't can't contribute something that actually improves it. So to not be married too hard to your understanding of what something is. And I think that, you know, the same concept applies to the way that we think about work and the way that we think about productivity and success and what it means to do a good job at work. Um, Alan was pivotal in me deciding to go down to four days a week for the team. I took a Monday off after doing breakneck speeds for a really long time. I just gave myself a Monday. And of course I texted them for most of the day and was like, you know, man, I feel like, like I, I was relaxing by telling Alan how much I was relaxing (laughs) and like, that's a good, good, good relaxing activity. Uh, And I kept going like, man, I wish I could do this all the time, but you know, there's no way. And they were like, why can't you? And, Mm. and being posed, even that question, having somebody challenge that the assumption and then being provoked to explore that was enough for me to go, well, uh, maybe my clients won't like it. Okay. But I mean, they probably understand too, that like, like they're, we're a vendor, right? Like they aren't, we're not available to them all the time anyway. I, I, maybe they won't have a problem with this. And none of them did. They all, um, for some of them, they knew that I struggled with health problems. So this was for me, 
a way to rest and uh, bring better work to them. It was a day that I could take to do doctor's appointments should I need to, uh, you know, and for those who didn't know about the health problems, they literally didn't even ask. Nobody balked at it. Uh, you know, we had one client that actually probably more than one client that was like, tell me more about this. Like, how did you come to this? That's so interesting. I wish we could do things that way. Um, I think that more people are really interested in trying to find these balances that don't necessarily exist. And, and it's important, I think, to keep your, your assumptions able to be challenged. You know, I think I, I told you the story, Michelle, that, uh, there was uh, a day, Alan, maybe it was like a year and a half ago, you said something about how you were going to take, uh, your lunch break and nap. And like, my initial thought was like nap in the middle of a work day. Like what the fuck do you think this place is? And then I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, one, they get to use their break however the fuck they want to Two. They could have just gone and napped and I probably would never have known about it. And three, if it helps them in terms of being able to better focus or feel like they're they're accomplishing what they were trying to, like that helps me sometimes too. What if my assumption that nap is bad uh, that like maybe that's incorrect and and what does it do when I start to kind of poke at it it doesn't feel good but why doesn't it feel good because it's wrong or because I have had this belief imparted upon me with next to no understanding about the why behind it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like in 2020, I wrote a thesis on the BMI that really like opened my eyes to stress and its impact on us. And because I feel like stress is like this nebulous thing. We're like, we're always under it. We don't know what it's doing. You know what I mean? But we all have it. It's like this thing we all have, but we don't know exactly what it is. And like when I was studying that, I I saw the research on how, um, you know, in terms of like, they're saying, oh, oh, being overweight is bad for you. But actually the stress of thinking you're overweight is worse for you than hmm. what they say over here. And it was that, that study that I saw, I went, oh, holy shit. It's worse for me to be counting my calories. It's that first of all, the BMI is bullshit anyway but like it was <laughs> let's just like um, talk about white supremacy but then like it was it was that notion where i was like oh my gosh stress is so so bad for you and like we like to think of our bodies as machines and and that feels really good oh what i put in equals this thing that my body does but we don't work that way you know it doesn't work that way um and that is part of this structure too this like capitalist mindset of it's like it's only input equals output and it's like no no no. we are we are human beings with a lot of things to take into consideration and our wellness I I mean I sometimes I hate framing it as like my wellness is actually a benefit to you Danielle as a business owner because it's the same fucking framework as like you know but but it is the truth and it does well and I I want to care about your wellness in in more for more reasons than just 
how productive you can make my business, right? right? Like that's, I'm not interested in that. Like, you know, we, we need, yes. But, but it's also to your point, it's indisputable. Yeah. And for business leaders of the most cynical variety, if that's the argument that's got to, that's got to be what rises to the top, then, then I guess let's make the argument if for no other reason than like the people, the humans benefit, right? Do I want business leaders to give a shit about the humans that work for them in the context of their humanity and not just in the context of what productivity they can bring to the table? Yeah, I do. Do I believe that they all will because they should? (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) Well, I mean, you got to look at Google too. It's one of the, like, having all of the benefits when you work at Google. I've known a couple people who've worked at the Googleplex and, like, you get the bus that takes you to work. That serves you breakfast on the bus. You have nap pods at the Googleplex for you to nap, but the whole purpose is for you to get into the office and produce as much as possible when you are there. So if that means you got to take a nap for two hours, it doesn't matter. You just keep coding until you finally are ready to go back home. Like, there aren't any open out, uh, open or closed hours within the office as much as you just like have to produce the work. I remember yeah. in my recruiting days that uh, somebody came in, a candidate came in and was talking about the benefits package he had. And it was just like very cool. They had nap rooms and they had a masseuse who would come in and somebody to pick up your dry cleaning and somebody could to, e- to even like come like pick up your car, change your oil, do what needed to be done, like all of these cool little perks. And I remember being like, wow, that's nuts. Like I'm in my early twenties going like, I wish I had that. And the guy was like, no, you don't because all of it is designed to keep you in the office at your desk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember to a client who was considering this company and um, she, she just described it as like very high energy, amazing culture She'd got on in for her interview at 8 p.m. Um, and everybody was playing ping pong and she was just she was just on a high. And I just couldn't get over the point that she'd gone to an interview at 8 p.m. and it looked like so many people were there. So she mm. kept but of course, you know, I at that point I was not gonna like destroy her or diminish her high. So she ends up working at the company. And gets the offer, works at the company. Two weeks later, she said, oh, my goodness, this is either a cult or I'm in the wrong place. Because she said it was like that every single day. Like, just everything. It was just designed to keep her at work. And that's not how she did her best work. She needed to go home, spend some time there, decompress, and then go back. But, yeah. How is the red flag not an 8 p.m. interview? (laughs) <laughs> sure yeah in office 8 p.m interview <laughs> but she the story the narrative that she we both like believed in was that she had an intense job anyway mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so this meant that she didn't have to take a day off but we're buying into that work hard mentality work hard play hard um work hard to the detriment of yourself mentality. So yeah, Yeah. but you're right. It was a red flag. 
it's yeah the the play hard that either never comes or has the tendency to and i saw this in the in the sales world all the time uh the play hard has a tendency to be less play hard and more drink until we black out uh Mm. to to turn our brains off, uh, you know, depress our systems. And I mean, I, I say that as somebody who's literally having a glass of wine right now, um, you know, like I've just, I've watched that play hard. Like I said, either never happen or happen in really destructive ways to our body. Not to say that, you know, like I, I, like I said, I'm having a glass of wine right now. I don't believe that, you know, we, we shouldn't be able to occasionally in, indulge in substances of our choice. But um, I've found that when you don't have a good understanding of how to put boundaries in place around something like your job, it gets a lot harder to put them around other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so... Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever gotten on vacation from a job and gotten sick the first second day? Like if that happens to me now, uh, you know, now that I've learned more, I'm like, this is an indicator that something's wrong. You know, if my body's waiting (laughs) until I get a moment's rest and then it's like, here's a virus I'm going (laughs) to or like welcome the virus or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. That was me at the beginning of this year when I got home from driving around like crazy and I called out for the first time and you both went, no, this is serious. (laughs) She doesn't call out. (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah. That that always happens. Do you know how many clients I hear like they'll go on vacation, the same thing. But mm-hmm. I actually do want to go back to the glass of wine. Like, how are you going to drink a glass of wine and not tell us that we should have bought a glass of wine? Right. You could have told me. <laughs> <laughs> right. My bad. Hey, this is a 5 p.m. interview. I just kind of expected that you knew what we were doing here. Okay. okay. No, I so. didn't. Danielle's actually, actually working and drinking. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> no I think um I think too the like I know for me that that when I was growing up uh you know there is <laughs> we've talked about the ways that like our families and our our upbringing and our stories kind of influence how easy it is to buy into something like this because it's interesting Michelle too that that your client was like either this is a cult or I'm in the wrong place because really it is a cult mm-hmm. like all of it is a cult the the concept of hustle culture is very culty and mm-hmm. I was really ripe for that uh coming from North Dakota where you know in the Midwest first of all it's it's a little waspy and it's uh a little uh blue collar like working is how you prove that uh you are better than everybody else right like there is um a, a need to signal to like the people around you but also to people in cities that like you should be paid attention to that you Mm -hmm. do contribute 
to the fabric of your nation. Uh, and I remember being, you know, 15, I think it was 15 years old when I was diagnosed with a bleeding ulcer. And, um, that was because, you know, I'm, I'm a straight A student. I am in eight different or extracurricular activities. I am the president of three of them. I am the treasurer of two others. Uh, and I see every, fix all of your fucking faces. Okay. Like <laughs> I get it, whatever. And I worked a part-time job and like, you know, I, my, my doctor said to me, like, you have to stop this. You cannot keep doing this. You are going to hurt yourself. And I was like, no, this is the meaning of life. This is what I should be doing. Um, I got to college. I was in, I had to be involved in organizations there in order to graduate. I took on, you know, I graduated early because I couldn't afford another year of college. And I was working two part-time jobs to make that happen. Like I was primed for this shit. Once I got into the general adult working world, where then I was told that, you know, I was in a, a performance related environment and like, you worked. And for five years, I mean, I, I bragged about how much I worked. That was like my big calling card. I would talk about it. And I think it was probably right around the time that you and I first met. Um, you know, I, I had this like running, I don't know, brag of mine where it, I would, I would count how many days it had been since I had a day off, not just like a regular day off, like a weekend, like a weekend day. And I think I got up to, God, it was like 160 some odd days that I worked just in a row. And I was in my early 20s. And like, I thought I was fucking cool shit. I burned out. I went into recruiting. My first day of recruiting, my first fucking day at a new company in a new industry, I worked 18 hours because they told us, if you don't bring us 200 resumes by tomorrow, don't come back to the office. And it took me wow. that long to find everybody that I was looking for. And I just left a very lucrative job to take a massive pay cut because I was trying to find work-life balance. And then went right into that where it took me a five hour energy, like two of them every day to stay awake. And then I drank all night because I fucking hated my job. That would last for years until I started my business. There's this weird connection I keep hearing of everyone saying like, my work ethic is part of the fabric of this nation. And like, we're working for this country to be one. And it reminds me a lot of like Uncle Sam rhetoric of like, totally. we're all actually building, we became the like military unit that we wanted to be during that time. But it's like, we're not fighting anything. It's just to keep billionaires, billionaires at this point. Like, it, we're not even even working together at some point, but it's still mm -hmm. like that mentality has just been engraved in everyone, probably in the... That's capitalism, isn't it? I'm saying it out loud. It's, <laughs> it's capitalism. It's capitalism. But like I said earlier, it's also white supremacy. You look mm -hmm. at the fact that like Florida is literally rewriting their history books at this time mm -hmm. uh, to be able to say that that slaves benefited from slavery by by learning work ethic or by contributing and feeling proud of their contributions, which is 
fucked up. Mm -hmm. It is so beyond fucked up. And here, this year, in the year of our Lord RuPaul, 2023, we are somehow still contending with this idea. One, to make white people feel better about our atrocious past. And Florida. In Florida, in particular. And two, because the concept that work equals benefit equals, you know, upstanding citizen contributing to society is, I, I don't know if it's ever able to be extricated from the way that this nation operates. Not if we're going to keep living under the same form of uh, a format of capitalism that we are now. It goes back a lot to like Rockefeller and like the oil and the monopolies in the early ages. You think that if you work as hard as them, you're going to be able to make that first billion be one of the first billionaires. But the realization is like, they all fucked other people to get where they were. They destroyed (laughs) lives to get to where they were. They didn't work super hard. They did at the beginning, and then they were like, oh, I just got to flatten everyone else out, and that's how you get to the top. Kaylee, I got to tell you, when you said they all fucked other people, I didn't mean, I didn't think you meant fucked other people over. I was like, they were just out fucking. Like, <laughs> Michelle, your kids should not listen to this episode. <laughs> this part, Michelle. <laughs> not peeping. <laughs> I mean, look, I think it's all about what the system and workplaces and capitalism mm-hmm. upholds and the toxic stars, right, that all contribute. And the toxic stars can be managers, politicians, leaders, but it's all it's all designed to, like, keep some up mm-hmm. and keep some down, right? Um, and, and this is why it's so important for us to own, each own our narrative and understand the context, right? So when I'm working with people and they're struggling um, to to find balance in a system, I have to help them see sometimes it's not you. It's the system. Mm -hmm. And you can keep on playing in this system, figure out how to change it. If it's a company, if it's a small team, or you might have to extricate yourself from the system because it's not for you and it won't support you. And that's really hard sometimes. I just don't understand how, how we're still, how we're having conversations around, slavery benefited people slavery benefit benefited who definitely not black people mm-hmm. the fact that they can rewrite the narrative in such a way to serve themselves and to to protect themselves is just to me it's just mind-blowing yeah it's interesting to, uh, michelle to hear you talk about clients and having to kind of break down for them where some of this comes from. Um, I just finished reading a really phenomenal book uh, about MLMs and the author talks about how people inside of MLMs often are both victim and perpetrator and that you, you have to acknowledge where you have both continued to perpetrate um, this, this, type of of belief system and and i think in hustle culture the way that we continue to perpetrate especially for business leaders like like you like me like uh taking a look at how we create cultures for our teams for working with our clients and where we say 
no, things have to be done this specific way without thinking about the narrative, without, you know, questioning it, but being married to that sort of hustle narrative, but also understanding that we too are victims of it. We are not the people at the top, but we are, when we allow ourselves to be their mouthpiece, that is, that is concerning, right? Like you think about the fact that like, we talk a lot uh, at, on our team about the debate about the return to office. And I saw, who's the guy on Shark Tank? I think his name is Mr. Wonderful. Kevin. Maybe it's Kevin something. <laughs> Kevin. So Kevin, Kevin something, Kevin, whatever you just said, uh, he posted something or he, he was quoted in an interview saying like how wonderful and beneficial remote work was. And then you realize about halfway through that he's being sarcastic and that remote work is great. And that means that my employees aren't allowed to have boundaries anymore and that I can call them at three o'clock in the morning and they have to pick up because you've chosen to not come back into an office office where there are certain hours that the office is open. And therefore that means that you must remain open all the time around the clock. And I can have zero regard for boundaries or office hours because office hours only apply when you come to an office. And it's wild to me because there are so many people that parrot this and act as this mouthpiece, not, not just for you know remote work versus return to office, but for things like hustle culture. Um, there was, I don't know the entire story, but there was a, a woman maybe who worked in some kind of, um, I want to say that it was a, a marijuana adjacent business or something in the marijuana industry. She had her desk job had been eliminated. She ended up having to move into like the manufacturing part of the house and she had COPD. So problems with her lungs that she said over and over and over again that um, that, you know, it was really hard to breathe in her workspace. It was really tough for her to to breathe throughout the course of the day. It was making her COPD worse and she ended up dying. Uh, and there, you know, there were other employees that had talked about how hard it was to for them to breathe inside of her workspace, uh, let alone her. And the amount of people who came not to the defense of this company for doing nothing, but who said they're both equally at fault. The company should have done something, but also she should have left that job. Why would you sacrifice your health for something like this? It is so embedded in us to try and understand where the person in power is coming from. And I think part of it, I have long felt that part of it is that if I can blame the woman who died, if I can blame the person who uh, didn't benefit from hustle culture, if I can blame the person who isn't going to return to the office, then what happened to them will never happen to me because I will do things differently. And I, I think that, you know, this idea of, of understanding where hustle culture, where, where these people in power are coming from often ends up making us mouthpieces for a system and a power dynamic that was never meant to benefit us here at in in the middle or at the bottom. Mm -hmm. 
I, I love how you put that, Danielle, because blame is like the crux of hustle culture. It's not me, darling, it's you, right? It's mm. not me that can't cut it, it's you. And so it kind of goes full circle, but the goal is trying to understand how are we framing the hustle for ourselves? I may still want to hustle. I still may want to participate in the grind on my terms. And what does that look like? And that's what that's what I think is really important for us to think about. How do we sort of like take control of the narrative so that when someone says, it's not me, it's you, you actually know what it is, right? Like it might be me because I don't, the way my values line up don't really align with yours and how I need to be in this workplace or how I need to be as a service provider um, or in service of our clients. So Blame is blame is something that we really need to try and understand in all of this as people with power. Yeah. Kind of going back to what we were talking about with work ethic and having to define and redefine for ourselves what it is. I think there is um, a, a misconception that the way that things were done at, at one point in time is the way that they should always be done. People are really quick to forget that we didn't used to have a five-day work week mm -hmm. with two days off. Unions are the reason that we have a 40-hour work week with two days off. Uh, that the way that things were done then required a change. It necessitated a change because it was wholly unsustainable for the workforce if we were to survive these things. Um, and... And now we're moving into what I feel uh, seeing this. I think that we've hit this sort of like ceiling, maybe not a ceiling on hustle culture, but I feel like we're, we're approaching this peak where people are starting to realize that it doesn't benefit them, uh, that they can work and work and work and work and work and, and still end up on this hamster wheel, right? They didn't go anywhere. They just did a lot of work. And they, they thought that it was in service of, of approval, of feeling valued, of, you know, money, of success or whatever it is that that might look like. And the way that things have been done, even in the last couple of decades, we are now going to have to have a reckoning with that and, and redefine what it looks like from here because Gen Z is not fucking having it. Just like millennials, just like our generation, you know, Alan, myself, Kaylee, to some extent, it's fine. Uh, like, just like we redefined things, like, I remember being in my 20s and being asked to, to speak on panels um, that were like intergenerational panels. And I was like the token millennial. And everybody in the room would be like, well, this bitch just wants a beanbag at work. And I'm like, no, I want good health benefits. I want to be able to uh, make money and, and leverage my salary, um, you know, to or leverage other offers to get a better salary, whatever. And they're like, well, you people have no loyalty. Millennials have zero loyalty. You don't care about staying at a company. You leave every two years. And I've jokingly said since that point, uh, I welcome the thank you cards from every other generation uh, that now they too do not have to stay at a job that is soul sucking for 20 fucking years because millennials so normalized the concept of leaving jobs 
in search of something better that worked for them that now the average amount of time that people stay at a job, we just talked to a recruiter friend recently is like two and a half years. Mm. So people get to leave. And I think Gen Z is coming in and making even more changes. They are protecting their peace in ways that seem wild and absolutely would not try this at home kind of a thing. But I think that there's going to be a reckoning Mm -hmm. as, you know, the old guard retires and as the workforce requires people to participate in it in order to function, we're going to have to start redefining what those boundaries look like. Well, Michelle, it goes back to what you said with blame. That's a lot of blame on a generation for, with a lack of context of what was going on for us when we came into the workforce, right? Like it's the avocado toast Mm -hmm. thing, right? Like, oh, we're spending all our money on avocado toast. And it's like, no, actually we can't afford houses. Mm -hmm. If you lack context and Michelle, you said this too, again, really beautifully, which if you, if you lack an understanding of the systems that are at play, like it's no good. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. No, (laughs) it's definitely no good succinct i lost steam in the middle i was like i don't even yeah. know what i'm saying actually i like that you protected your piece <laughs> i did i protected to just my feel like right and and right there that's yeah my, that's my boundary that's all i'm saying <laughs> love it it's all about the boundaries though like mm. even you know it's interesting i i've worked with clients where they've needed to put um provisions in place to support them in the workplace And the number one piece of feedback that I'll get once they put the provisions in place is that they don't maintain the boundaries that they've set and provided for others in this, in the, in um, the accommodations. And so it's really about being clear Mm. around our boundaries and holding to our boundaries if that's what we want. Right. And that's the same thing with the hustle culture. How do you frame it or reframe it? So it works for you, not the other way around. You know, and, and a lot of people sometimes feel, look, I don't have the power to do anything. Yeah, you have the power not to answer an email at 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. Like, you do, right? Yeah. I don't, yep. yeah, where you are in the system, you have the power to not answer anyway. You put the boundary in place. And if that's a problem, they will let you know. And then you can make the decision as to whether you need to be in that place. Yep. You know, technology is great. Technology is also another reason why we're sort of like in this grind, but technology is great. Send later, right? Yeah. You can send an email later. No one needs to send an email in this day and age at 11 a.m., 11 p.m., 11 a.m. is okay, 11 p.m., 1 a.m. You know, it's funny you say that because like I have uh, been trying to teach myself to remember that even Slack has a schedule send on it Mm -hmm. because like I tell people, it's right there in my email signature. I tell my team this like, hey, I work odd hours sometimes. If I ping you and it's, it's your off time, you do not need to respond. I just need to dump it somewhere. But also over the course of like the last couple of months, realizing first of all, that Slack had a schedule send option. I've been like, you know, I feel like that, that in and of itself can also be a boundary violation, you know, that, 
that uh, me me dropping that in there, even if I'm telling everybody no pressure to respond, it still is going to be some kind of pressure, right? Like there, there will still be that notification. I turn off all of my notifications. We have, you know, a client that we have separate devices for, and I have purposely intentionally and, and will continue to intentionally never connect my phone to that device because I am not accessible 24 hours. We've had clients that, that have boundary, um, I wouldn't call them boundary issues, but we teach people how to treat us sometimes, right? And if we make ourselves completely accessible to them all the time, they will come to expect that. It's one of the reasons that like Alan, you know, we call them our chief annoyance officer. They chief annoy our clients about our SLAs. Like, yeah, you need this tomorrow, but we've been very clear with you that we have a three business day service level agreement. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we're going to try to get it done tomorrow because we want to help you out. But also we need to adjust expectations that you should not expect this for three business days. And if you get it earlier, that's a favor, but it's not an, it's not an all the time thing. And sometimes, you know, I mean, being able to, like you said, not respond to an email, just letting something go until the morning, not answering the phone on your weekend, on your vacation. Uh, I have taken great delight in not responding to text messages on my vacation from clients and instead letting it swallow my time in other ways, like angrily texting Kaylee and Alan that I can't even fucking believe that this client is fucking texting me right now. How fucking dare they? Don't they know I'm on vacation? Now I'm mad and I'm going to stew about it for an hour. That's how I protect my peace. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so interesting. I mean, we have to model what we want, right? So I, I have the same struggles, right? With my team, with my clients, a lot of my clients, I'm trying to help them break this pattern of like, first of all, recognize your positional power. Just because you say, just because you say, because I email you late at night doesn't mean that I'm expecting a response. Yet you are the leader, you are the founder or the owner of this business. It's positional power that that people just think, well, they say that, but I should really respond. Mm-hmm, and right. so for myself, it's like, you know, I we're all a work in progress, but when clients email me at the weekend, I don't respond. You know, I might read it, I might respond in that moment I try not to but I'll delay it so it goes on Monday morning unless we have an agreement where something's happening and I'm on standby right then we've set an agreement but I don't I don't like to give my cell phone number for people to text me 24 7 because a lot of what we do as you know is we need to protect our 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 peace and we need to carve time around ourselves time for ourselves to to relax and to not, and to sort of like disconnect from the noise, right. In order to do the the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, I I try to just model what it is that I would like to see in the world and remind myself that, yeah, just because it came through at this time doesn't mean you need to respond to it. But like you, Danielle, sometimes I see it, then I stew and I say to my husband or some, like, I told them I was on vacation. Why would they send this, this SOS? I've I've literally heard that tone come out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. 
I I completely understand that. I think, you know, too, something that you said um, earlier about, you know, finding balance, but like also some people like to hustle. Like I I say this often, I, I worry that I'm actually an incredibly boring person because the only thing that I really think about or do is my business. Like this is my baby. It is, it is also something I love doing. You know, I'm, I'm good at it. I feel confident when I do it and it's less about the work and more about, you know, just something that I genuinely enjoy at the same time. There are times where it can feel like an abusive relationship, you know, and there was a period of time, maybe a year ago where my husband brought that to my attention. And I was like, you're right. Like I need to reevaluate how I interact, not with my team, but with the business and with my own expectations of the business and with myself. Um, you know, I think that you can, I feel like sometimes when we critique hustle culture, it can be perceived by people who just genuinely enjoy working, like that there's something wrong with them or they shouldn't enjoy working in this way. I don't think it's a problem to enjoy the work that you do. I think that it's a problem when we cannot identify why other than we've wrapped it up in our identity when our work becomes our worth. And when we genuinely don't know how to function without it Um, on a recent episode, Alan laid out what their retirement plan future was for the both of us. And it just involved more work. And that was upsetting. It was upsetting. Wow. It's fine. Um, but like, <laughs> but like, you know, I mean, I I used to say, even even when my husband and I met, I said there's no way I would ever be able to stop working. I wouldn't know what to do with my time. And now mm-hmm. I do not feel that way. I do not dream of labor. Like I do love my job and I I like what I do. And at the same time, I don't want this to be my forever. Yeah. It's so fascinating because I'm the same way in that I love what I do a lot. And I feel boring. I was on a walk. I was walking with a friend this morning and I said, I don't do anything. I just work. (laughs) That's all I do. It's like, I, I mean, look, I do get together with friends and stuff and I do, I'm involved in a lot of different things, but when you're so deeply connected to your work, you have to remind yourself to like step away. And I have to remind myself of, well, what else is around me and who else is around me? And I say, I have two daughters and I say to them all the time, this was my first baby. You're number two and you're number three. Like you're like, you're all my kids and I love you, but this was my first baby. But sometimes, you know, it's funny because I'll say one more minute, one more minute. And they'll say, you need to talk to your boss because you need some time <laughs> off. <laughs> and I'll say, you're okay. right. I'll talk to my boss to see if I can get some time off. <laughs> but it's a reminder that, you know, this stuff will be here tomorrow. I think um, what you talk about with your kids there too, you know, there was something that we talked about on that, that same project management episode where Alan dreams of retirement labor for us. Uh, It was, um, and I I still don't, I, you know what I did? I, I quoted it on the episode and then I laughed about how I was butchering the quote. And then I laughed about how often 
we butcher a quote on this podcast and then never remember to look it up. And I'm going to repeat it <laughs> knowing that I didn't look it up in between, but I'm just going to like repeat like my version. There, There is somebody, it might be Glennon Doyle. It might be Brene Brown. It might be that woman who wrote Wild, Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. Uh, but somebody, one of them talked about how like, you're always going to be juggling. There's always, you know, uh, balls that you're juggling in the air and that some of them are going to fall. You will not be able to sustain juggling forever, but you should do your level best to try and make sure that the ones that do fall aren't the ones that are made of glass. You know, mm. what else? Things like our health, things like our our families, uh, you know, the things that matter long after a, a workday is over or a job is over or a business is folded. Like what what else is beyond that? Um, you know, who am I without my business? Sometimes I'm not sure I know. And that to me is worth exploring and worth yeah. digging into. Yeah, I think about like, I do values exercises pretty frequently just for myself, just to see where I'm at and what I I'm, I value in like work and my life and whatever. And I, I find that going back to my values and kind of gauging my life based on how much I'm filling it with the things I value often can give me an idea of where I'm maybe not being so holistic. I think I actually talked to you about this. You're asking advice about something recently, Danielle. And I was like, well, how's your relationship with your husband? How's your, how's, how do you feel about like your hobby that you do? If all those things feel pretty good right now, you can probably add something to your plate. That sounds really exciting. But if not, oh, it was about adopting another dog. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. It was like, it was like, I mean, this relationship with this animal is important to you clearly. So how are your other relationships? How's your relationship with work? Like, you know, and I do that stuff for myself. I literally was just like, well, I'll try this with Danielle. Um, but it does offer a really nice gauge for me to know who I am outside of work and how much bandwidth work is taking up for me. I think part of my, my struggle with things like that is, and, and this is part of, this is part of hustle culture. This is part of perfectionism. It is, oh, I'm going to do this values exercise. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that, but I have to do it right. And then after I look at it and I go, these are my values. I need to fill my life with these things. Then at the end of every week, I will beat myself up because you didn't do enough value things this week. Oh, no. What what are your values even? And so it is like like having the cyclical thing where like sometimes paying attention to it you, like I have to constantly remind myself that there is no, the only scorecard is the one in my head. And, and that is part of, I mean, that's part of the, the promise of, of hustle, right? Like that's the part of, uh, I need to do things perfectly and I need to do them the way that they're meant to be done or I'm doing them wrong. And if I'm doing them wrong, then what is my value? Oh, wow. Yeah. It's such a control so, thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Nicole. No, no, sorry. I'm, I'm, um, 
I love, first of all, I loved when you talked about values. I'm a coach. It's all about how are you living in alignment with your values, right? I don't care what, um, if you're, if you're speaking to a coach, no matter what their area of discipline is, function, the expertise is, you're always thinking about values and alignment. And so when you think about what makes life and work meaningful, what are the values? And to your point, Danielle, like we kind of have to dispel perfection, right? Mm-hmm. This is meant to be a fun exercise. There's no gold star for this, right? You just fun. You, <laughs> <laughs> you benefit from it. So that was one. And then I remembered the other point I wanted to make when you talked about retirement. And uh, last week in the, the through the Goldman program, we were talking, the, the module was around being bankable and our exit strategy. And I can tell you, I never have thought about my exit strategy. I don't want to exit. I'm going to be holding on to my factor. I thought I would be holding on to my factor um, till I'm like, you know, way 10 foot under. And I thought, I thought about during the program, I was thinking the class, I was thinking, well, that's kind of freeing. Like thinking about my exit in terms of legacy, some Mm. company buys my factor or acquires my factor um, as a partnership and continues the work that we're trying to do. And so, and I started to get really excited about that. You know, I wasn't worried about what will I do? What will I figure out? You know, what will I be? It's like, you'll figure that out along the way. And so I don't know, maybe there's part, part of the process of growing a little bit older is that it becomes a little bit more freeing to think about who am I with that work? Like when, when my kids look at me, they they do talk about me working hard and I'm trying to dispel the myth, the notion of you have to work this hard, right? Yeah, Every yeah. day. I want them to have a little bit of fun. We're going to laugh and we're going to do some things that like stress us out and do some things that make us laugh and do some things that like, wow, I learned something new about myself. So I love the notion of values because I think that's so important in this work and like in terms of breaking, disrupting the grind. I like that. And I think, you know, when we talk about um, challenging our ideas around hustle culture and challenging ourselves and our identities that kind of get wrapped up in this and the the why we believe in it, it feels to me like, you know, this is definitely not something that is just for people who work in a certain type of industry or a certain type of discipline. This is really, I think it applies to really just humans. And if you are wrapped up in this idea that in order to, you know, be successful or in whatever that looks like, or be valuable or have value to a person that it comes with working harder, doing more, that that's something to explore. But, you know, when we talk about how to examine or how to change these things, um, what do you feel like are, are some good action items for our listeners to uh, really start examining like today, tomorrow? Uh, mm-hmm. How am I a participant in this and how is it impacting me and how can I stop it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's largely around defining success on your terms and what makes life and work meaningful for you. I think that's a very important thing to reflect on. And then when you think about it in that, from that, with that lens, what else would you be doing? So similar to you talking about 
is it time for me to adopt another dog? But like, what if you had the space, right? Um, what if you didn't work so hard? What would that, what would you be making space for? Or what would you need to let go of? Who would you be spending time with? Who would you be making space for? Or what would you be making space for? And then how would you feel if you pause the overwhelm? Like sometimes in a coaching conversation, we will sit and like, okay, let's just play a game. Overwhelm. I'm just, and I push the screen, like we're pausing overwhelm. What else is there? And it's just interesting because like, it's almost like this, it's like, the, um, the it's freeing it's just a game but it's freeing because overwhelms paused right now you get to play in this world for like another 20 minutes what out what happens and it's just so it, you, i don't have to do any talking the person does all the talking and they figure out okay here are the things that i need to do what i want to do like so how are we going to make it happen sure right? so that's what i'm i i think that and really being intentional every day and ask if you are in this pattern of grind, like just asking yourself, how can I disrupt the grind for myself? And how can I disrupt, disrupt the grind for others? I think that's, um, that's something, especially when we talk about, you know, the, the sort of uh, toxic culture that, we as small business owners can sometimes fall into, um, you know, and I think especially it gets to a place where like, we love what we do so much and we are so devoted to this business that we're building that we have a hard time understanding when other people aren't maybe as devoted to it as we are. And of course, why, why would they be? Uh, you know, this is, this is something that for them, even if it is a job that they find incredibly fulfilling and they really love doing, it is a job. And it is, even if it is a career, it is still a job. Uh, and nobody is ever going to be as attached to the baby as we are because it's our baby, right? And so as a result of that, I think sometimes I know I've felt it in the past. I know I've talked to other small business owners that have a really hard time understanding why their teams aren't necessarily as devoted to the business as they themselves, the owners are. And I think what you said there about how can we disrupt it for other people is really something striking to to remember that you know how can we disrupt it in ourselves how can we disrupt it for our teams um you know as people managers as is some, for some of us who are small business owners how can we you know i know that kaylee allen we've all talked about like the the trauma the baggage that we have brought to this workplace from previous workplaces and, and the, the stories and the narratives that we've brought with, even when they're not the case. And we have to do that for each other sometimes and say, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I do it as a people manager, but you all have to do it as well. And you all uh, disrupt those sorts of stories and say, Hey, like I'm here. This is who we are. We have control over this space and we don't have to, to tell this same story as was in any of our past. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, being responsible for, for helping disrupt that in other people and challenge those assumptions. I really like that um, because, yeah, it's not just about disrupting it in ourselves. Sometimes it's actually mm-hmm. easier to identify it in other people than it is to identify it in ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And then when we do identify it in other people, yet we are part of their system, then it behooves us to question, what am I doing to perpetuate this cycle for this person as as a manager, as a co-worker? Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michelle, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, One last question we always ask our guests to tell us a little bit about uh, the biggest mistake they ever, or the worst mistake they ever made in the workplace. Uh, A lot of that comes down to uh, wanting to normalize that we're human, that we make mistakes, that we can fail, we can uh, recover from it and and keep moving on. Uh, We feel like by normalizing some of those pieces, uh, we can maybe let go of that need to be perfect all the time and instead Mm -hmm. uh, focus on on just trying trying to get better and improve every day. So do you have a a mistake story for us? I believe you do. Just one. (laughs) No, seriously. Um, (laughs) I think about my first job out of undergrad. So I was in procurement purchasing and I got to lead my first bid for, we were installing a new lab. I worked for a biotech company so I'm leading my first bid and like it's all gone, like it's request for proposal. So you get these amazing tenders, beautiful bound documents are pretty pricey to put together. But in the backdrop, it was my first job and I was a little bit disorganized. I had my own little office cubicle. If you would see my desk, you would say that I haven't changed, but it's a work in progress. And <laughs> so, but there wasn't enough space on my desk for all the binders So I, in my infinite wisdom, decided to put them on my bin, my trash can, and I lined them up. So there was two sort of like piles of these tenders, and I would get to them the following morning. So I come to work, go to work the next day. There are no proposals, like there are no RFPs. No, I'm looking around. I call downstairs. I'm and they say they thought it was tra- tra- rubbish. They threw it into the trash. No. And I, so it's my, no. it's my first big tender. I'm so scared to tell my boss that the tenders have been thrown away. So I'm pacing up and down the office. He hasn't come into the office yet. <laughs> and then one of my friends said, well, they're probably in the, 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 the what do you call it? The, the, the no. big dumpster at the back of the building. No. So, I go, I'm wearing a suit. I get someone to help me climb into the dumpster. It wasn't food stuff because I'm a germaphobe. It was just papers. And I'm like looking for these RFPs. And as I'm looking, I'm thinking, Michelle, you can call the people that sent the RFPs, the vendors, and ask them to send them again. Yes, it's a big expense, but you can call because this right here in the dumpster is just not the thing. So I get out the dumpster, dust myself up, go upstairs. My boss is now in the office. And I say to him, something happened to the RFPs. I said, I put them on the bin and they were thrown away. And it's my mistake. I said, I'm going to get another another set. 
and I called and these people sent all, they all sent their RFPs that day. So I didn't really need to get into the dumpster. So that was my, my lesson of like, okay, <laughs> use your death both wisely. It was embarrassing. Oh my God. Oh my the God. Panic when you walked in and you were like, where did they go? Like I, and then realizing the trash, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I can I, actually. I, rem- I, I mean, I was doing that, you know, that, the breathing that you do, like when you're like, what's happening? Like I could not even catch my breath. I could not. Why would they throw? And then again, the blame. Why would they throw? Right. The RFPs were because you put them on the bin. Right. So what would they make? Like, oh, she's just resting them there? That's what I thought that they would think. So again, I kind of, oh I, mean, I am proud that I took full responsibility. Um, yeah. And we got some new RFPs. But yeah, that's, that's tough though. And, and I know the feeling of like, there are no choices now. <laughs> I must come clean. You know I mean? I, there are no other options. It's like, what? This like, is... like, you cannot, you cannot make up the lies, right? You, like, what am I going no. to say? Like, right. how am I, I'm like literally thinking about what can I say that would be a plausible reason as to why they were put in the bin? <laughs> and he just looked at me like, okay, I get it. Like, dumb thing to do, but like, oh it, it happened. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, now I, uh, you know, feel less bad for this giant pile of papers that you can't actually see just like off to the left here. So... Michelle, thank you so much for sharing uh, a, a wonderful and uh, sort of hilarious in retrospect story for us. And thank you so much for being uh, a part of our podcast today. Uh, we really appreciate you joining and sharing not just your expertise, but also some of your personal experience with that as well. Uh, we hope that our listeners have gotten a lot from today about how to start to uh, unpack some of these ideas in yourself and really deconstruct this uh, this narrative of, of worth connected to work. Uh, we hope that wherever you are listening, you uh, make sure to like, subscribe, follow, uh, follow us also on Instagram. We are on LinkedIn. We are on YouTube. We are on TikTok. We are on Facebook. I'm like guessing things now because like Kaylee just keeps looking at me like saying there's no, more. Okay. There's more. Stop. TikTok. That was it. That was it. That was it. We're there. We're on all of these places. Uh, you can find Broad Digital Consulting on all of those places as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Our podcast is hosted by Danielle Bilbrook, Kaylee Myers, and Alan Connolly, and produced by Margot Gill. You can always learn more about Broad Digital Consulting on our website, broad.digital. That's B-R-O-A-D dot digital. Or you can find us on social media using the handle at Target Snarket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you're feeling so inclined, we'd love for you to review our pod if you like what you're hearing. 